Psalms 120. Are you there? In my distress, I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given unto thee? What shall be done unto thee, thou false tongue? Sharp arrows of the mighty with coals of juniper. Woe is me that I sojourn in Mesek, that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. My soul has long dwelt with him that hateth peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. But you notice verse 1. Everybody in this room can identify with what he said in verse 1. If you have not been there, you will be there. In my distress, that's when you sent an SOS call, I cried. You've been so burdened that you cried. You've been so broken that you cried. He said, in my distress, I cried. I thank God he cried to the Lord. Amen. Cried to the Lord. And then go down with me to verse 5, because this is where my text is, where we're going to be building around this a little bit tonight. He said, woe is me. Remember how Isaiah said that? Woe is me. That's another way of saying, man, I'm in big trouble. I am in big trouble. He said, woe is me that I sojourn in Mesek. I'll talk about Mesek a little bit later. But here's what I thought I want you to get, because it's only found twice in the Bible. I dwell in the tents of Kedar. What does it mean to dwell in the tents of Kedar? I want to preach a message as part of a series we're going to be looking at from Psalms 120, 134. Tonight's message is entitled, Dwelling in the Tents. Of Kedar. Father, already tonight we can say we've been blessed. You have filled our cup. It's overflowing. Lord, tonight my, my prayer for me and for our church is what Paul said in Hebrews 12, that we would pursue holiness without which no man shall see God. Father, we're weak. Some are distressed. Some are broken. Some are struggling with sin. But all of us need mercy tonight. All of us need, Lord, what David got in Psalms 120. And some are dwelling in the tents of Kedar, a very foreboding place a very difficult place to be. And tonight, Lord, we know that we can get out of those tents. We can get out of that place. And as we start this series, as long as you lead me tonight, I don't know if it'll be one week or two weeks as you lead, Lord. As we go through this series from the Psalms of Ascent, I do pray this evening that it will be a growing time. I pray there will be a time we experience the grace of God in an unprecedented way in our lives. I pray it be a time for us to really learn what it means to have faith in God and to trust God. I pray it would be a time we learn how to have unity where there's disunity and dysfunction. I pray that we learn what it means to really have a family life, to build a home. I pray that we learn through this series what it really means to have church and what real church is all about. I pray that we learn that God, the trials are God's gifts in our life. 
gifts that you give us, Lord, that we might realize that you're trying to make us better, not bitter. And so tonight, Lord, I, I pray for a spirit of humility and a spirit of meekness whereby we may receive this precious seed of your word. As we said last week, I pray that you break up the fallow ground of our hearts, you turn it over, so that God, the soul of our heart, would be ready to receive the engrafted word which is able to save souls. I pray this evening would be a transformational time for every one of us. I pray for it be a preparation time. I pray that as a church family, we'd grow in grace together. Lord, you help me tonight because I, this is kind of a pathway and that I, I've not been down before in preaching a, seri- a, a, message, a series of messages like this. And I just want to be sensitive, Lord, that the Holy Spirit is in it and that, God, that you use me as your, as your, your vessel tonight. Father, I don't really want to hide behind the cross tonight. I, just want, I don't want anyone to see me. I want them to see Jesus tonight. And I pray this evening that you'd use this study to help us to be enriched in our studies and enriched in our Christian life and to make some changes, Lord. And God, deliver us from being stubborn and God, deliver us from being set in our ways. And God, help us tonight not to have that Laodicean lukewarm attitude about the Word of God. And remember tonight that Jesus is not on the outside knocking, you know, knocking to get in. And I pray that, that, Lord, that, that, Lord, Jesus would have free access and entry to our lives this night. Bless this series. Bless tonight's message. Use it for your glory. Holy Spirit, come upon me now with a fresh anointing. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to get your pen out and your notes. I want you to take some good notes over this series this, this next several weeks here as we prepare for that. And we'll be kind of off and on on different things here. First of all, tonight we're looking at Psalms 120. It's the first of about 15 psalms that are categorized as a song of degrees. You've probably read that many times. It's probably encouraged you many times. Many times I've had people who are in deep, deep trials, and I, I find myself taking them to Psalms 120, Psalms 121. And I find them just realizing that we're all at this place that I will look unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from God. But it's called the Song of Degrees or the Psalms of Ascent. They were, they were written in, in a category, category, uh, categorical way to help us understand that these are to help us understand the steps of spiritual growth there. Uh, they were given this name perhaps because of the fact that the priests, as they ascended up the temple steps, they quoted all 15 of these psalms. It was important for the priests and the Jews at that time to memorize all of these psalms. I encourage you to memorize these psalms. Maybe make us a project to take these 15 or so psalms, that about 8 to 10 verses each, to memorize those and, and imagine yourself being like these, these, these priests. And these priests, if you would, they would start at the first step. And on that first step, they'd be at that first step, and they quote Psalms 120. Then they climb up to the second step, they quote Psalms 121. They go to the next step, they quote Psalms 122. And they would ascend the stairs and quote these these Psalms as they ascended each step until they got to the very very 15th step, and there they would quote Psalms 134. It is said that when the Jews celebrated and when they made their way from all over the different countrysides and places where they lived, they would make their way back up to the hill of Jerusalem to get up to the holy city. And as they did so, the pilgrims there would make their way, they would quote on, on the Feast of Passover, the Feast of, of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, they would quote these psalms. They would stop along the way and quote Psalms 120, Psalms 134. This psalm, these psalms remind me of Genesis 28, when Jacob had a dream of a ladder, or literally a staircase that ascended from, he, from earth to heaven. And the angels were ascending and descending on this ladder or this staircase. At the top of the staircase was the Lord himself. When we read John 1, 51, Jesus gives us some insight about that staircase from the, top, from the bottom to the top. At the top of uh, that ladder was the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, worshiping him. And it reminds me tonight that our Christian life, our journey, our walk of faith is ascending, ascending on through Jesus Christ, that he is the ladder, he is the staircase 
place on which we climb and which we walk upon. And as we look at these Psalms, we find that they speak to our heart. They speak about every, every facet, every, everything having to do with the Christian life. It deals with our heights and with our depths. And the series we're on, I've just t- simply been titled, I'm Going Higher, because that's what, the, that's what the essence of the Christian life should be, amen? I'm going higher, and I'm going higher. We don't want to be going lower, amen? We want to be going higher. You want to be going higher in Jesus Christ. You want to be climbing the staircase, that, which is Jesus Christ, and going higher in your Christian life. And that's what he's trying to help us understand tonight. The Christian life is going higher and higher. I think that's what Enoch did when he walked with God for 300 years. I believe he kept going higher and higher and higher. That God saw how close he was getting to heaven, and God just decided he was going to take him. He snatched him out. The Bible says he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, when we look at Psalms 120 tonight, we need to read it in conjunction with Psalms 52. David wrote both of these psalms. David is the author of four of these psalms of ascent. Psalm 20 is ascribed to David. Psalm 52 is ascribed to David. Interestingly, for both these psalms, Psalm 52 and Psalms 120, they deal with a nemesis that David had in his life. They deal with a deep trial and difficulty he had. And that difficulty trial revolved around a man by the name of Doeg. And you want to remember that name. Doeg is found in 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 22, but he's the highlighted personality that is the nemesis, the adversary, and the adversity to David in Psalms 52 and Psalms 120. Doeg's main name means fearful. Doeg was an Edomite. Doeg did some terrible things to David, which we're going to read about tonight. You may be experiencing that in your life, and if you haven't, you will experience that in your life. David describes a place he was at in his life in Psalms 120. Notice verse 5 again. He said, Woe is me. I sojourn. I sojourn. I'm living. I'm traveling. I'm dwelling. I'm making a pilgrimage. I'm just kind of wandering, if, if you would, in Misek. Misek is an ancient name which we can tie to Moscow. He's thinking about the Cossack Mount, those Cossack mountains there, that mountain range which is rugged and very, very terrible, and the, and the weather is not very good. And he's saying, I had to run and escape. When you read over there in Matthew, Matthew talked about, Matthew 24, about the great tribulation there. And he talked about the Jews there, Matthew 24, how he's talked about running to the hills and finding covering. That's where David was in his life. He was running to the hills to find covering and a shelter and a refuge from his problems and heartache. He says, "My I sojourn in Mesek, but he talks about dwelling in the tents of Kedar. Now, when we read Psalm 120 in, 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 in alignment with all that we said about Doeg, I want you to understand where David's at. David's at the first step. David is at the bottom. David is stuck. When he's writing here in verse 5, he is stuck, okay? Now, if you may not, you may not have been there, praise the Lord for that, but there comes a time in everybody's life where you're just stuck. You're not really going anywhere. You're just kind of, you're just stuck there. You're not, you're not floating anywhere. You're just, you're just kind of stuck there. And David's at the bottom. He's stuck. He's at the bottom of the staircase. He's not ascending anywhere. He's stuck. His soul life, his spiritual life is stuck at Mesek, and his spiritual life is stuck at this place called the Tents of Kedar. He's, in a, he's not in the best of places. He is stuck there. And you know, when you're in a Christian life, when you're, when you, as we see tonight, as we unravel this message, when you're at the place of Mesek, and you're at the place of the Tents of Kedar, you feel very stuck. You feel like you're at rock bottom. You feel like is there any way up. And when you look up, it looks like a hard arduous, difficult journey to take. David is stuck here. He's at the tents of Kedar. And so tonight, we're going to ask this question we want to answer tonight is, what do you do when you're stuck in the tents of Kedar? What do you do as a Christian when you're stuck at those tents of Kedar? I want you to see four things very quickly, because I don't have a lot of time tonight. I want you to see four things very quickly about David's experiences here. Number one, I want you to see David's suffering. David's suffering. David is in a bad, bad 
place in his life. Notice verses 1 to 3. David said, In my distress, I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. Circle the word distress. David is distressed. He says, Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given unto thee? Or, or what shall be done unto thee, thou false tongue? He's not talking about himself. He's talking about what Doeg did to him. Now, David is suffering. David is stressed out. Do you ever get stressed out? Say amen. Amen. You know, you get stressed out a little bit. You have the people that stress you out. You have things that stress you out. You got work that stress you out. You got a boss that stress you out. Does your pastor stress you out? Don't say amen to that. Amen. Okay. You get stressed out? Yeah, of course you get stressed out, amen? You get everybody gets stressed out. Things stress you out there. I mean, you know, you just, you know, uh, being, being working in the ministry kind of stresses you out. Having a lot of responsibilities stresses you out. If you're, if you're a parent with young children, you get a little bit stressed out. Now listen, emotionally, stress makes you anxious. It makes you restless. It, you lack in motivation. You feel overwhelmed. You even feel sad, even depressed. You can become irritable and angry. Emotionally, that's what stress does to you. Physically, stress gives you headaches, it gives you muscle tension, it gives you fatigue, uh, you have a loss of desire, and you have sleep disorder. Uh, behaviorally, when you have stress, you find yourself withdrawing. You, if you're not very careful, you can become addictive in different ways. You can overeat or stop eating, and you can be subject to, uh, to outbursts of your, of your emotions there. You know, I'll come back and talk about more of those later. But this is the first of the Psalm of Degrees, as I said. Dave is at the first step. We're at the first step tonight. We're we're looking at what happens when you're at the bottom. We're looking at what happens when, you, when you're bottomed out, when you're at the first step. As a young man, David may have been maybe 18, 19 years old when he wrote this psalm. Maybe 20 years old when he wrote this psalm. David is stressed out. He's at the bottom. David is distressed. David is suffering. What was David suffering from? What were his sufferings? Look at verses 2 and 3. Letter A, notice he's suffering because of a hurtful mouth. He's suffering because of a hurtful mouth. He said, Lord, he's praying a prayer. Lord, deliver my soul. Now, it wasn't him physically, but it did affect him physically. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given unto thee? What shall be done unto thee, thou false tongue? Keep your finger there and go with me to Psalm 52. Go with me to Psalm 52, please, for a moment. We're going to go back and forth here. Psalms 52, are you there? Say Amen. Notice what he says. He talks about in verse 1 about Doeg. He says, why boastest thou thyself in mischief, O mighty man? Now, wh why did he say that? Well, I'll say more about it a little bit later. But Doeg was the chief of all of Saul's sheep herders and herdsmen. He was the chief of all of them. He was the guy in charge of all that. David knew him. David knew about him. In fact, if you study, you study a little bit historically about this, the rabbis, the old, old rabbis, believed that Doeg was a man of great influence. In fact, Doeg was said, they say the old rabbis, I say that Doeg was a man that was known for his words of wisdom. He had a winsome way with his words, and he could draw people to himself, and he tried to captivate people's attention. And so he probably didn't claw his way to the top. He probably manipulated his way to the top. And Doeg was very well held in high esteem. You notice this. We'll see if we get time tonight in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. Saul did not question him. This was a man that was held in great credibility and high esteem with Saul there. But David knew otherwise. David knew about this man. David rubbed shoulders with them. You know, sheep herders know sheep herders. Sheep, shepherds know about shepherds. They know good shepherds. They know bad shepherds. You know, it's kind of like my dad was a butcher growing up. He knew who were good butchers and he knew who were bad butchers. You know what I'm saying? You know, you all know that. You know when somebody good in what they do, you know somebody that's not so good in what they do. He knew about this man. He said, why do you boast in your mischief, almighty man? But notice what he says in verses 2 and 3 about this man's mouth. He said, thy tongue devises mi mischiefs like a sharp razor working deceitfully. Thou 
Thou lovest evil more than good, and lying rather than to speak righteous words. And we'll come back to that for a minute. Now David is suffering because of a hurtful mouth. David, if you want to write this down, is a victim of lies and slanders. Doeg the Edomite was the one lying and slandering him. Saul was mad at his people. He said, which one of you, hey, aren't you guys for me? How come you're not, you're, nobody's telling me where David's at. Surely somebody must know where David's at. Surely there must be intel somewhere around our country that tells us where David's at. Are you for me or are you against me? Doesn't anybody know where David's at? Well, none of them truthfully knew where David was at. I mean, he had, he had, he had, his, he had his, his captains and so forth. They know. But then comes along Doeg the Edomite, and Doeg says, well, I know where David is. He's over at, the, he's over at Nob Hill. He's over the hill of Nob there, and he's there with the priest Ahimelech, and Ahimelech, and he, and he twists the story around a little bit. He said, the Himelech came and prayed for him. Well, Himelech didn't pray for him. He came to, David actually went to Himelech, and Himelech didn't go to him. And he went to, because he went for help. And he said he gave him some bread, and he gave him the sword of Goliath, and he just pictured the whole thing. He, 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 he with his words, he pictured the whole thing as if David was trying to mount up an, an offense or defense against, 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 against Saul. And of course, as he, he put that all together, David got word about that later on from the, from the son of Himelech. And David said these words. He says, I knew it the day that I saw Doeg there. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, notice several times. He talks about in Psalms 120, verse 2, about lying lips. He talks about a deceitful tongue and a false tongue. In Psalms 52, he talks about a tongue that devises mischief. He talks about in verse 3, Psalms 52, verse 3, about lying rather than righteousness and devouring words and deceitful tongue. What's he talking about here? Well, Doeg the Enomite was the one lying and slandering David. Now, let me, let me give you some things tonight. Lying is when false and misleading statements are said about another person or something. Lying is when false and misleading statements are made. Lying is when, when, when is being deceitful with our words. Lying is not telling the truth. Lying is twisting things to make it fit what we want it to say. Lying lips, the Bible says in Proverbs 6.17 and Proverbs 12.22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Lying lips hide hatred. We find that in Proverbs 10.18 and Proverbs 26.28. Lying is giving a false witness. The devil is a liar from the beginning. Ephesians 4.20 25, Christians are admonished. He says, wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his labor, for we are members one of another. V David was a victim of lying and then slander. These lies were slandering him. They were, they were attacking his character. It would, in, in our legal terminology, it would be libel today. He was being lied against. And Paul, when he was writing to the believers at Ephesus, and we find this true even when Paul wrote to Titus about the Christians, he said they are liars. He talked about being liars. Back in that day, people thought nothing of being liars. There are certain countries and societies of people, they don't think anything about lying or misrepresenting the truth. They can say the truth and their face doesn't flinch and nothing changes them. They could, they could just give a lie and it doesn't bother them. But he's telling these believers who got saved at Ephesus, don't go back to your old practices. Don't be deceitful to your family. Don't be deceitful to your children. Don't be deceitful to your church. Don't be deceitful to your church leaders. Don't be deceitful to your friends. He says, put away lying. What he's saying there is not just taking off a jacket and throwing it on the side. He's basically saying, he says, you know, it's like taking the garbage out. Take the garbage out and put it inside the canister, put the lid on it, and never go back in that canister again. That's what he's saying about lying. You need to put away lying. May I tell you tonight, we need to put away lying. We need to stop misrepresenting the truth. We need to stop being misleading. We got to stop being fraudulent. We need to stop using words that fit our way. We need to stop being character to assassinate we need to realize tonight that lying hurts people and lying hurts God. Amen. David's been slandered. False accusations have been made against him. He didn't do anything wrong to Saul. But all these false accusations are being made. Slander is when false statements are made against a person's character. Psalm 31, 13. Listen to what David said. For I have heard the slander of many. Now he didn't list all of them. We know about Doeg. 
And we know about Saul. But he said, I heard the slander of many. Fear was on every side while they took counsel together against me. They've devised to take away my life. Slander is the work of talebearers. Look what Proverbs 20 verse 19 says. He that goeth about as a talebearer. You know what a talebearer is? How many does, who doesn't know what a talebearer is? You know what a talebearer is? Hey, can I tell you something about so-and-so? Can I tell you about this situation here? He, said, he says here, the words of a talebearer are his wounds. Anytime you talk a story about somebody else and you just get into this road of being a gossiper and you tell stories about other people, listen, you, there's no good that comes out. All it does is hurt people. It puts wounds in their hearts. The heart knoweth its own bitterness, the Bible says. The words of a talebearer are wounds. And they go down in the innermost parts of the belly. Look, slander is the work of the devil. The very name of the devil is Diabolus. It means accuser of the brethren. Well, David was suffering because of hurtful mouth. But notice Psalms 52, verses 2 to 4. Go back there, please. David was hurting because of a hateful malice. In verses 2 to 4, which we read earlier, Doeg's attacks were malicious. They were malicious. They were mean. They were calculated. They were intended to hurt. He describes this man's tongue like a sharp razor working deceitfully. They're premeditated. He says that love is evil more than good and lying rather than to speak righteous as Selah. His intent was to hurt David. His intent was to wound David. His intent was to turn David over to Saul. His intent was to see David killed. He didn't have any heart for David there. He sought to undermine David's credibility and to dismantle it. He speaks of his, his, his words being like a sharp razor that would cut. That he says that love is evil more than good. And he talks about his words being devouring words. Doric jumped at the opportunity to maliciously attack David. When David, when Saul was perplexed, he says, is anybody here for me? Doric stood up and says, well, I saw, I saw the son of Jesse. I saw him. And then later on, when, when Saul came in a, and approached Ahimelech, the priest, and the 84, the other four other priests that were there on the hill of Nob, he, didn't, he, he, tried, he tried to take that false accusation, and you know, Ahimelech told him the truth, and he didn't want to believe the truth, and so he turned to his men, he turned to his captains there, he said, slay the priest. The priest said, hey, we're not going to touch God's anointed. Don't, don't ask us to do that. And he looked at Doeg, and Doeg said, I'll get it done. And Doeg had it on his hands, on his, on his hands, the blood of 85 priests that he killed there on, the, on, the, on, on Nob Hill there. And one got away. That happened to be his son. And his son got away there, but he killed him. He didn't think anything about it. He killed 85 priests out of spite and mouth. He didn't love those priests. He didn't love what they represented. Why? He was an Edomite. He was a man of the flesh. Hey, Edomites and Israelites didn't get along. And this Edomite found his way. He worked his way up to be the chief, the chief shepherd in Saul's army. Saul had no business hiring this man. But this man portrayed himself as being someone that was loyal and someone to be loyal to Saul's cause, and he found himself over there in charge of all of the sheep and all of the sheep herders and everybody there. And so David says about him in Psalm 52, verse 1, he said, why boasteth thyself in mischief? On the side, he was boasting, I've turned in David. On the side, he was saying, I've turned, I've, 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 I've been successful in helping Saul capture, uh, to get a hold of David there and to believe what I said there. Malice is vengeful action against another person. When malice takes, takes effect in our hearts, bitterness has been working its way in, like, like just working way like termites working in wood. It's just worked its way in. Bitterness has found its way. Bitterness has resulted in hatred. Hatred has turned into wrath. Wrath turns into malice and it just gets worse and worse and worse. Vengeful, malice is vengeful action against another person. It is premeditated attack. Malice is seething anger that when built up grudge that hurts and maims and injures someone else. The sin of malice is a satanic strong in the life of a believer who, who's, who through this becomes mean and nasty and hateful and destructive. 
it. May say to you tonight, if there's anything in our hearts that's malicious, if there's anything where we're mean and we're malicious and hateful, may I tell you tonight out of love for your soul that that is a satanic stronghold where Satan is working in us. We've allowed unforgiveness and we've allowed bitterness and we've allowed hatred to work its way. And we don't even realize this work its way in us. It's kind of like before you have a heart attack, as I said this morning, before you have a heart attack, plaque has been building up in those arteries and you may not feel anything, but it's building itself up and building itself up until it's 90% clogged up. And then all of a sudden you have this heart attack. You realize that you've had this heart problem. And we don't really realize how malice works its way in our hearts until it exercises it out in terms of mean and nasty and hateful and difficult things, destructive things that we do. The sin of malice is what was wrong with the believers that James wrote about. Look at James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, this is what James said. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts and war in your members? Can you imagine the body of Christ? Look up here for a minute. Can you imagine the body of Christ? There's wars. There's battles. There's hassles in the castle, amen? I mean, they're fighting among themselves. He said, from whence come wars and fightings among you? And leading up to that, with James chapter 3, we talked about the sins of the tongue. I realize sometimes you get around people and you, you see more people than you want to know. And sometimes we can get so focused on, their, on, 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 the, on the rough spots and the things that, are, that we just despise. Do we let it eat away at us? And if we're not very careful, we say things we should never say. John James said this, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts and warn your members? You lust and have not, you kill and desire to have. Can you imagine the body of Christ you kill and desire to have? Cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you have not because you ask not. Then notice something else. If you go back to Psalm 120, David talks about this malice. The sin, the sin of malice does not seek peace. That's very interesting. Where malice is reigning in the life of a believer, where this sin of the, the sin of the Spirit is reigning, it, the person who's filled with malice does not seek peace. Look what David says there. Interesting insight he gives in Psalm 120. In verse, seven, he, verse 6 and 7, he says, My soul has long dwelt with him that hateth peace. Beloved, when malice is working in us, we have no desire for peace. We have no desire for reconciliation. That's why you look at some people when they get, they get their feathers ruffled up and, and malice is working. They don't want peace. They've let malice control them. Let me tell you tonight, it's a satanic stronghold. And we need to bring every thought in our spirit captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And notice what he says here, verse 7. I am for peace. David says, I've tried so often. I want to get it right. I am for peace. But when I speak... They are for war. That's the syndrome of a doeg. That's the syndrome of a doeg spirit. David is suffering. May I say tonight, if you are a victim of malice and hurting words, you feel cut to the heart and wounded. May I say tonight, if you're the one, in, if you're the one inflicting the wounds through slander or lies or malicious, the malicious spirit, you're sick, you're spiritually sick, and you need help. You just submit yourself to the Lord and realize that's a spiritual sickness that you've got to get to the Lord. You've got to get to Dr. Jesus for your help tonight, Amen. Lying and false statements, a critical spirit, and malicious attitude destroys marriages, destroys children, destroys churches. By the way, children, you say something mean to your parents, you never know what you, you could destroy your parents with that. You could just, there are pastors that are out of the ministry because of hurtful things that, that members have said to them. There are, there, are, there, are, there are people that once were great servants of God, they're no longer serving God because of hurtful things that were said about them. I just say tonight we see David is suffering. 
Ephesians 4.31, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Like I said, he's not talking about taking off a coat. He's, taking, he's saying, hey, it's like taking the garbage out. Take it out, put it in the can, put the lid on it, and walk away from it. Take the old stinky thing out. 1 Peter 2.1 says, We're for laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking. Hey, did you ever notice how many times the Bible speaks about malice? You know, because Christians can be mean. I said this the other night. Sometimes Christians can be mean. And sometimes Christians can even be wicked. We saw that the other night on Wednesday night. And sometimes it gets a little uncomfortable when the Word of God exposes what we are. And you know, I hate to say this, but I think a lot of times we read verses like this and we just pass over and think that it's, like, well, it's not really mean. The truth of the matter is we need to stop at every word because every word of God is pure. We need to stop at every word and let God work in our hearts here. But David was suffering. Notice number two very quickly. Would you go back to Psalms 120? We see David suffering. Would you notice number two, David's sojourn? In verse 5, he said, what was me? You know, in other words, he's at the rock bottom. He can't, he doesn't know where it's going to be. I mean, the, the ascent looks too high. It looks too hard. It's too far for him. What was me? What was me? First, he felt like he was living way up north in the mountains of Mesek. Now, to make a description that he'd run as far as up to the Kosek Mountains, and he could even consider going to Mesek, was that he was running from his problem. He's trying to get as far away from slander and malice and hateful words and a hateful spirit. Really, he's trying to get away from being killed from, Do from Saul's men. And he's feeling like he's cut off. He felt like he was in a barren place and barely scraping by. He felt he had no choice but to run and hide. He said, woe is me. And sometimes we feel like that when we've been hurt and we've been slandered and we've been pushed aside. We feel like we're up in the mountains of Mesek. But then he says something else that's very bothersome. Second, he felt like he was living in the dark place of his life. The tense of Kedar, talking about the dark place in life. Kedar means dark. Kedar is referring, if you go back in your Bible study, Kedar was one of the sons of Japheth. And it talks about someone who was in a, later on that became an Arabian a, a wanderer. He lived in tents. Because he was in the sun so long, he was very darkened by the sun there. And the Bible is, the Bible is used as an image here, as a picture for us to understand. David was in a dark place in his life. He was living in tents of darkness. There in this place, he wasn't living in the tabernacle of God, which he had dreams about. He was feeling like he was in a very, very dark spot in his life. He was dwelling in a place where he felt like, I don't know if there's any way out. I don't know if there's anything I can do about this. He's feeling like that, that, that he was in these, this tents of Kedar. He says, I, he says, I sojourn, I dwell in the tents of Kedar. I'm just wandering around. I feel like a Bedouin Arab there. I'm just wandering around. I feel like I've got no goals. I feel like I've got no sense of direction. I feel like I have no leading. I don't even feel a sense that I've got any desire for the things of God. He said, I just feel like I'm dwelling in the tents of Kedar. I'm feeling like I'm in this place of loneliness. Hey, listen tonight. When you're in the tents of Kedar, you feel very lonely. You're at the tents of Kedar. You feel all alone. You feel you've been rejected and you're wandering away. You feel like you're, there's nobody there for you. Joining the tents of Kedar makes you feel like your soul is among lions. David said in verse 6, my soul has long dwelt with him that hateth me. He says, man, every day seems like forever. Every day seems like eternity. He says, my soul has long dwelt with him that hateth me. Literally, what he's literally saying there, I feel like this, this, this trial I'm going through right now, I feel like it's been a long time. Listen, when it's your trial, when it's your difficulty, regardless what it is, whatever you're suffering, is. Every day is long and every evening is difficult. David knew who Doeg was. When he wrote Psalms under 20, the, nobody, nobody had questioned about the fact that it was Doeg there because it links up with Psalms 52. Doeg hides himself among the sheep. 
Doak finds himself in a place of influence. Doak works himself to become chief, chief, uh, chief sheep master. He does not own the sheep, but he likes to control the sheep. As a shepherd, David knew Doeg was up to no good. And as I said earlier, David knew that Doeg would hurt him. He said, I knew it that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I mean, his clothing, everything about his demeanor indicated he was an Edomite. Everything indicated that he was not, he was an adversary of the Jew there. Doeg knew that. David knew that. But Saul was, was, Saul was taller of that. David threw David under the bus. Doeg killed 85 priests. Doeg is boastful in his mystery. He said, look at me. Look where I've gotten with this. It, it kind of works here. I can take advantage of somebody else to get to where I want to go. And listen, David David's at this place as we look at his, his sojourner in verse 5. David is feeling lost. David is feeling lonely. David is feeling forsaken. He felt like he was stuck and had nowhere to go. And I wonder tonight how many Christians this evening are, are in a place of Mesek or a place of the tents of Kedar. You feel like you want to run and hide. You feel lonely. You feel abandoned. You feel forsaken. You're in these tents of Kedar. You feel like you're in a dark place in your life. We see David suffer. We see David sojourn. But you notice verse 1, we see David's supplication. Amen. In my distress, thank God you got a place to go to when you have stress. Amen. Thank God. God is there when you have distress. Thank God. He knows your pain. He knows your sorrow. He knows your heartache. Hey, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Amen. Thank God tonight we can come to a God who's there 24-7. Thank God we can come to a God who doesn't turn off his phone. Thank God we have a God tonight who's there for you at all times, at all manners, no matter what the situation be. Thank God we have a God who tells us, what, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Hey, thank God tonight we've got a God who gives us Hebrews 4.16. The Bible says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Hey, before you got saved, it was a throne of justice. Before you got saved was a place where you had to be judged by the, by the throne of God. But thank God when you got saved, you got mercy in your life and the mercy of God keep overflowing. And after you got saved, that, that throne of justice became a throne of grace. And when we go there, we can find grace to help in time of need. We can find the mercies of God there. Listen, we need to be there more frequently at the throne of grace and not less frequently. We need to be there with all our trials and all our troubles and all our problems. We need to realize like David, when in my distress we can cry to the Lord. was torment in his praying. He cried. Literally, he's yelling out to God there in some mountain place, probably in the cave of Adullam. God, Lord, where are you, Lord? God, I'm hurting his side. God, and this is before, this is before those, those mighty men came to him. He said, God, what am I going to do? God, Doeg has turned me, he's thrown me under the bus. God, they've, they've slandered my name and the good name of my father, Jesse. I mean, man, we, we, I don't even know if I can ever go back to Jerusalem again. Well, thank God God took care of that, amen. He's in torment. He let the Lord know how he felt. And by the way, tonight, when, when you're distressed, you can tell God how you feel. Hey, you can tell God you're lonely, Amen. You can tell God you're hurting. You can tell God that you're about to burst asunder. You can tell God what's going on in your heart. He was in torment, but listen, there were tears in his praying. He was sobbing, he was weeping. He burned inside as he prayed. Hey, later on, David wrote in one of the Psalms, he talked about how God, collect, God has his book, and he collects all of our tears and puts them in that book, in a bottle, and he records them in this book there. So what do you do? How do you pray when you're suffering like that? Well, let me give you some thoughts this evening, okay? Do you write this down, please? Number one, we must pray in faith. We must pray in faith. The hardest time to pray is when you're feeling like David did. 
It looks easy when we read it, but when it's your trial, when it's your suffering, it's difficult. When it's praying faith. Listen to what the Bible says here, Psalms 31. And you, you study this on your own. Four times you talk about trusting God. I'm going to give you two of them. In Psalms 31, verse 1, he says, In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. I want you to understand something. David didn't even have a bottle of water with him. Remember that? He was crying there. He said, oh, if someone could just bring me a cup of water from the well of Bethlehem. Remember that? He didn't, have a, he didn't even have a canteen to hold his water. He said, man, I've got to learn how to trust God. God was teaching him how to trust you. Hey, thank God tonight when he sends you hot problems and difficulties and trust, you learn how to have faith in God. Without those, you'll never learn to trust him. He, he was thanking God for these trusts. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. He wasn't putting his trust in the mighty men that would come to him. He wasn't even putting his trust in his, in his skills as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a giant killer. He said, in thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Then he said this, let me never be ashamed. Let me never be ashamed of being a believer. Let me never be ashamed of identifying with the faith of who Jesus is. He says, and he said, uh, deliver me in thy righteousness. In verse 14, I trusted in thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my God. We must pray in faith. We must have absolute, we must just absolutely commit all of our care, all of our concern to God, and realize he can see us through. Number two, would you write this down? This is the hard part. This is hard. Would you write this down? We must not only pray in faith, we must pray for our foes. Now, that's the hard part. The Bible says about Job, Job, God turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Malice, slander, that's a stronghold. It's a spiritual sickness. It's a captivity. And when you're like that, you can't get prayers answered. When you're like that, fellowship with God is broken. Notice what David learned. David learned he had to pray for his own. And by the way, Jesus talks about, because I'm going to quote what Jesus said in Matthew 5. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. It's hard as a preacher sometimes. Deal with some hard things that are said. It's hard as a preacher sometimes when people you've done good to, you've been on their side, they, they leave and go somewhere else and they take other people with them. That's wrong. And you know, as a, as a, if you know your Bible, you start thinking about those imprecatory prayers that David prayed. And you say, well, should I do that? I remember a, a preacher friend of mine, he's gone on to be with the Lord in heaven, but I remember a preacher friend of mine many years ago, he said this, you know, Brother Fong, he says, you know, we lost 100 people in one year. He said, we, had, we just had some, we had some problems inside the church there, and some people got disgruntled, and they took a bunch of people with them. And, you know, he said, the first thing that came to my mind was to pray those imprecatory prayers of David. I said, did you do it? He said, no, sir. I said, I'm glad you didn't, because th that's how David prayed. That's not how we're supposed to. We're to pray for our enemies. We're to pray for them to disciple use us. And the first thing you need to do when you realize when, when that, that anger boils up and you feel like that resentment comes within and that envy comes within, first thing you need to do is drop on your knees and find that quiet place somewhere with God. You need to pray for those who despitefully use you. We must pray for our foes. Thirdly, we must pray for freedom. Look at Psalms 34, verses 4 and 6. Because Psalms 34 was written very close at the same time. It was after God had delivered David from all these things from, from Saul. And God had given David a respite of time and a respite of uh, peace from, from all this situation. And this is what David said. And I want you to imagine David who's anxious and David who's, 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 a, who's a bundle of nerves about to explode. And I want you to understand David. Da David felt like a lot of us feel like we're about to break and fall apart and we don't know what we're going to do. Here's what he said. I sought the Lord. 
He didn't see the psychiatrist. He sought the Lord. Amen? He didn't go down to the local pharmacy there. He said, I sought the Lord. He didn't knock on somebody's door and say, I need to tell you about my problem. He said, he sought the Lord. Hey, listen, when you're in distress, you need to cry to the Lord. He sought the Lord. And you notice what he said, and he heard me. Now, that doesn't mean he might answer you, because the Bible tells us in John chapter 19, when, 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 when Pilate asked him a lot of questions, the Bible says, Jesus answered him not. And remind you tonight, sometimes Jesus will answer you not. Sometimes he answers you not because it's not time for him to give you the answer. And sometimes he answers not because maybe there's sin blocking the pathway between us and God that we need to confess. Listen, when those times God doesn't answer, we just need to wait. And the Bible says, but he understood one thing. Now, he said, I sought the Lord and he heard me. He said the same thing. In my distress, I cried to the Lord and he heard me. Hey, thank God tonight, God does hear you, amen? He doesn't have a deaf ear to what goes on. He understands that he's all-knowing, amen? But that doesn't mean he has to answer right at that moment. He said, I sought the Lord, he heard me, and he delivered me from all my foes. Is that what he says? He delivered me from all my foes. Is that what he said? All my fears. Because the biggest enemy in his life weren't the people on the outside. The biggest enemy in his life was inside of his heart. It was the fears that he had. That's your biggest enemy. My biggest enemy is your fears. Listen, when disease comes into your home, and insurmountable things that happen, it's the fears that take control of us. It's the fears that make us think wild things. It's the fears that make us anxious. It's the fear. Listen, you show me what a man's afraid of, and I'll show you what he worships. When those fears control us, listen, Satan is looking to use fear to control us. That's why we have the image there so often in the Gospels of the disciples being on a storm or Paul being in a storm. Why? Because when you're in a storm, everything's out of control. You've got to dump your cargo out. You lost all your cargo. You've got, to, you've, got to, you've got to realize that the most important thing on the ship is not the cargo. The most important thing on the ship is you, your soul, and the people with you. And when it's out of control, all you can do is trust in God. I saw the Lord, and he heard me, delivered me from all my fears. Then he said in verse 6, this poor man cried. Hey, you know what David's doing there? David knew he was to be the next king. He had the anointing on him. The anointing meant he had the favor. The anointing meant he had the power. The anointing meant that God was with him. But the anointing also meant God still had to do some work on him to get him ready to be king. By the way, if you think you've arrived, God still has got some work to do on you and to do on me before you arrive. Amen? This poor man cried. We need humility. And again, the Lord heard him. And he saved him out of all his troubles. David suffers. David is sojourning. David's supplication be close enough. Would you notice David's solace? He said, the Lord heard me. Now, David found comfort. Now, we read Psalms 120. We read Psalms 120. What happened to Doeg? The Bible doesn't tell us. Now, I'll tell you what happened to Doeg. God took care of Doeg. Because if God wanted to tell us what happened to Doeg, we would pray, Lord, do to, do to my Doeg like you did to that Doeg. And that's not what God wants you to pray. Amen? That's not real Christianity. 
Because David, David came out the better of all this, better because of all this. David was, David was a greater Christian because of all that. He could withstand the trials and the storms there. So I want you to notice tonight that David, David finds solace, he finds comfort. And in verse 1, and in Psalm 52, we'll see this in a minute, he said, God heard me. Now when God heard him, what did God do for him? Because God always hears us. When God hears us, what does he do for you? How does he get you through that circumstance there? David found great comfort in how God handled the situation. May I tell you tonight, you're going, if you're in the tents of Kedar, we've got to find solace in how God handles the situation. Because you know what? No one's going to handle it better than God. No one has a better idea on the solution than God. No one's going to do you better than God on that situation. No matter how bad you're hurting, no matter how bad the pain, no matter how lonely you may be, no matter how rejected you may feel, no matter how small you may feel, no matter how dirty you may feel, I want to remind you tonight that when you give it to God, God handles the situation better than you and I will ever handle it. So notice Psalms 52 and we're done tonight. First of all, David is grateful. Look at verse 1. Now, Psalm 52, we read in alignment with Psalms 120. He says this. He's talking about Doeg. He says, Doeg, why boastest thou thyself in mischief? Why are you boasting about what you're doing? Almighty man. And he's kind of a play on words because he's comparing him to God. He says, you're nobody compared to God. And then notice what he says. The goodness of God endureth continually. Isn't that great? He's talking about lying words and a deceitful tongue and the tongue being like a razor. He's talking about being slandered. He's been talking about a lot. His legs were cut off from under him. He's talking about how he's been character assassinated. He's been hurt through all this. And then he makes this remarkable statement in verse 1. He's just talking about the goodness of God. He's grateful. He's saying, the goodness of God endureth continually. You know what he's saying? God is good all the time. Now his perspective changed. His perspective changed when he got grateful. Can I give you a word of counsel tonight? Do you want to get out of a trial a lot faster? Do you want to see the Lord moving along a little bit faster? Thank God for the trial. Thank God for the trial. Thank He gave it to you. Thank Him that it's custom designed. Thank Him that He has a plan in place. And David says that the goodness of God continues forever. You know, I, I think David just sat there and he was kind of, he was, he was kind of just moping around for a long period of time, and finally he said, you know what, this is not going to work. He started thinking, all the things that God, the goodness of God, and listen, you start making a list of everything God, that God is good to you about, all of a sudden you realize, I don't have it so bad, I'm still, he, you know, first of all, he said, I'm still alive, amen? So I'm still alive. Number two, he said, I'm saved, amen? He's number three, the anointing hasn't gone, I still got the anointing, amen? I mean, I don't understand it, I don't know why the preparation of being king has to take me through this pathway, but he says, thank God for it. And then number four, God brought people in his life. He says, the goodness of God continues continue forever, and God was taking care of his needs. And he says, you know, I still got my hands, and I still got my feet, and I can still war, and I can still fight. And he, God gave him some things he accomplished here along the way, and God gave him some little victories. He said, the goodness of God continues forever. Hey, listen, tonight, God's goodness is always there. You just got to look for it, Amen. David's grateful. Number two, David is experiencing the grace of God. Look at verse 9. I will praise thee forever, Lotus says, because thou hast done it. Thank you, God, for the problem, and thank you how you're going to resolve it. Amen? I will praise thee forever because thou hast done it. And he says, I'll wait on the name, because it wasn't over yet. Yeah, when you read Psalm 52, Psalm 120, it wasn't over yet, because Doeg was still around. The, the, the ancient rabbis, the old rabbis, they say that perhaps that Doeg, that his, his stuff caught up with him, and they, they said that the Jews turned against him and killed him. 
I don't know if that's true or not. I'm not going to worry about that. God took care of it. He just said, I'm going to wait on your name. You know, wait on your name. Hey, the best thing he learned how to do, he learned how to worship God through all this. Best thing that happens when you go through a trial, you learn how to worship God. You improve when you worship God. And he says this, he says, I will praise thee forever because thou hast done it, and I will wait on thy name, for it is good before thy saints. You know what he's saying here? Listen, there's a good testimony through all this. This is a good testimony for those mighty men one day that God would put alongside him. This would be a good testimony for him to talk to his children about later on. This would be a good thing to talk to his subjects about. Listen, he says, listen, I'm going to give testimony of how good God is to me. He says, for it is good before thy saints. He says, it's good that I'm going through this because everyone else will see how I'm afflicted when I'm going through what God's doing. Hey, listen, tonight, when my wife first got diagnosed with cancer, and the second time she got diagnosed with cancer, and the third time she's going through cancer. Listen, I live every day on pins and needles when I get up in the morning, when I go to bed at night. And I wonder every day, God, what's going to be next and what's happening there? And anything small change in life, it just kind of gets me back on, recalibrating on things. And every now and then, I'm wondering, God, how are you going to use it? But I'll tell you, we didn't see it coming. But the countless number of people who are going through the cancer trial and going through those valleys and difficulties like that, and pastors' wives that are going through that, that you don't even know about, just for my wife just to be there and just said, you know what? I, don't, I can't tell you a whole lot, but I can tell you this. God taught me how to have faith in him. God uses these things to help other people. David's experiencing graces. God's grace is a strength being made perfect in weakness. Can I give you some thoughts tonight? David was very weak at that time. God was strengthening him. God's grace helped David to be patient. He said, I'm waiting on God. You know, when we talk about waiting on God, he teaches how to be patient. Tribulation worketh patience. God's grace helped David to be faithful. He did not quit. May I encourage you tonight? Don't quit. Amen? Don't quit. Don't quit. Losers quit. People don't trust God quit. I'm not, being, I'm not being ugly. I'm just telling you, don't quit. Don't quit. Stay at it. David said, I'll wait on thy name. I'll praise thee forever. He says, good for before thy sin. Don't quit. Don't quit reading your Bible. Don't quit serving God. Don't quit praying. Listen, maybe God has to extract some junk out of our lives to make us sweet and lovely and kind and gracious to other people there. God's grace helped David not to fall apart. That's what the word grace means. David is grateful. David experiencing grace, but write this down as we're done tonight. Notice verse 8. David is growing. Are you growing? I'm not talking about how you measure yourself according to the word of God. David's growing. Look what he says in verse 8. What a remarkable statement. He's only about in his 20s. He's not king yet. But I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. And he had the right perspective. He's still thinking about God's house. He's thinking one day, I've got a vision for building a house for God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. Hey, the, the picture there of a green olive tree is abundance and fruitfulness. And he's talking about a green olive tree in the house of God. He's growing. He said, I trust in the mercies of God forever and ever. He wasn't asking for riches. He wasn't asking for a mighty army. He was asking to give him more strength and more armaments. He said, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. You know, what a great thing if every one of God's people could be a green olive tree in the house of God. Think of what God would do, amen? 
Think about a green olive tree. Think about the olive oil. And you think about the oil itself. I'm talking about the anointing of God and the saturation of the Holy Spirit. And you think about the green olive tree being a symbol of fruitfulness and healthiness. I mean, that's a healthy church and a healthy Christian and a growing Christian and a bounding Christian. I like what Brother Denny quoted this evening. He said, be ye steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's a green olive tree in the house of God. Hey, green olive tree is somebody who gets up in the morning and says, praise God, it doesn't matter what the day is. It doesn't matter if the power is out or the power is on. It doesn't matter because God's on and God's up. And listen, I'm going to live for God. And thank God tonight, someone could be down and down in the dust, but they know that God's alive. Listen, when you're like a green olive tree, you just decide, I'm going to plant myself in the house of God, and I'm going to plant myself in God's Word, and I'm going to abound in Jesus Christ, and I'm going to bear fruit and fruit that remains. I'm going to go out and get some souls saved. I'm going to pray for God to do something great. I'm going to pray for God to do something beyond me. I'm going to pray for God to just give me some situations so I could trust in Him. Listen, when you're a green olive tree, you got your roots deep. And when you're a green olive tree, you got the sunshine of God, God's face is shining upon you. When you're a green olive tree, you just know that you're just going to keep going higher and higher and higher. I like the fact that when we think of a tree, a tree points one way, and that's pointing up to heaven. Amen? Amen. He's bearing fruit while he's going through a time of suffering. That's a great thought right there. Put his trust in the mercy of God forever and forever. David's at that first step. When he started out, he was stuck, but he ain't stuck anymore, amen? He's going up. He's going up. He's going up. He's going higher. I'm going higher, Christian. I'm going higher. I'm not going to be stuck in the tents of Kedar. I'm not going to be stuck on Mesek there. That's not the mountain I need to be. I'm going to look to the hills from which cometh my help. My help cometh from God. I'm not going to be stuck down there. I'm going to go higher, brother. I'm going to go higher with Jesus. I'm going to go higher in the word of God. I'm going to go higher in prayer. I'm going to go higher in winning souls. I'm going to go higher in mission. I'm going to go higher in having a sweet attitude. I'm going to go higher in forgiveness. I'm going to go higher in doing the things of God. I'm not going to get stuck at that first step. I'm going to get off of that because God's going to get me out of all these troubles. The goodness of God continues forever. I'll be like a green olive tree planted in the house of God. I'm going higher. I'm going higher. I'm going higher. You need to go higher too. Keep going higher. Keep going higher. Moody used to tell a story I've told many times before, but it fits so well with this. The Christian lady lived in a rundown place in Chicago. She lived in an attic apartment on the fifth floor of an old rundown building. It was a neglected building. Rats outside. This lady was disabled. Couldn't get around much. But she was probably one of the sweetest Christian ladies that you'd ever meet. Her health was bad. She hurt more. more there were more days that she hurt than she felt good. She had to rely on people to bring groceries to her and to help her out. She was way up on that top attic there. She wasn't in no penthouse anywhere. She was in an old attic where nobody even knew that she was at. Just a studio of a place. Barely maybe 200, 300 square feet in total square footage of what she lived in. Terrible sink where she had where she wash her dishes. I mean, it's just an awful place. But she had the sweetness of Christ. You'd walk in that room where she lived, and there'd be the sunshine of God's love all over that place. She had a Christian lady friend that wanted to visit her. She'd visit her frequently. She'd come along, bring her some groceries, bring her some things. And, and really, the Christian lady came, that came to see this lady that lived in that attic, she didn't go there to, to necessarily get something that for, 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 uh, to give something to her per se. She just went there because she knew that that lady that was in terrible circumstances had more to give her to help her spirit. 
She made her way there, and she did so. She thought, you know, I'm going to bring another friend with me. And she thought about a, an aristocratic, well-to-do lady. lady that was very wealthy, a very lady that had never been down in the, 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 the challenging parts of the city of Chicago there. This lady would never walk down that crime-infested area. She'd never walk down that, that area. We'd call them the slums back in the day. And she brought this very dignified lady with her, who professed to be a Christian, but just, just kind of just, her nose was up in the air all the time, if you know what I mean, you know. And they started making their way there, and that refined Christian lady, that very dignified Christian lady who was very aristocratic, she started looking at the dirt and how just even that nobody took care of the trees. She said, what a disgusting area. And her friend would say something like this. She said, it, he said, it's going to get better. She'd say something like, it's going to get better. She said, it's, it's better higher up. It's better higher up. They kept on walking, and the lady would just keep remarking, man, this place is terrible. She said, where are we going? And she'd just keep saying, it's better higher up. It's better higher up. Then finally they got to that rundown apartment where that Christian lady up on that attic lived. And their other Christian friend said, she said, okay, now we're going to go upstairs. There's no elevator here, anything like that. She said, we've got to walk up the stairs. And she said, I just want you to be careful. Hold on to the banister. Walk very carefully. It's, it's, this place has not been careful for a long time. And they opened the door and had this musty smell. And she says, this is such a terrible place. But she turned to him and said, it's going to, and she says, it's better higher up. It's better higher up. And they started making their way up. They went up the first floor. That wasn't so bad. They got the second floor. They're, they're, they're puffing a little bit. They get to the third floor, and that dignified lady with her, with her pumped shoes on, she's feeling really tired, and she's thinking, why am I even doing this? She says, it's terrible. And she says, she says, she tells her friend, she says, can you smell the smell in here? Can you see how musty it is? It's so dirty here. What are we doing here? And, and her friend would just keep saying, it's better higher up. It's better higher up. Finally, they got to the fifth floor, and the both ladies had broken a sweat because they're tired, and they've walked all the way up, and they're just, and the other lady, that rich, that rich aristocratic lady, is kind of very negative and very, just a bad attitude about the whole thing and thinking, I don't want to be here. And she says, you know, are you sure this is right? She says, just watch. She knocked on the door. They waited for a very long time, and the disabled woman, that disabled Christian woman, that godly woman, she opened the door. And let me tell you this, that as they walked their way up, you can tell nobody cared about getting lights on in there and so forth. But when she opened that door, it just seems like the sun rays of God's love opened up at that moment. She opened the door with a big smile on her face. She said, oh, she said, glad it's so good to see you. Who's your friend with you? And she introduced her to him, and they, they came inside. And she really didn't have anything to sit on. Have you ever been to a place where they didn't have any chairs? Ever been, ever, ever been to somebody where they didn't have any chairs? They felt very embarrassed. And, you know, I've been in a place where they said, well, can you sit on a box? I said, hey, I, I don't need to sit, sit anywhere. I can stand and don't worry about it. And their place is disheveled, and they're very ashamed. Of it. I said, don't feel ashamed about it. It's okay. You know, it's, it's great. It's all right. Man, you know, I can stand, and I can sit anywhere. It doesn't matter. And that dignified lady looked around. She tried to find a clean chair she could sit on. And she saw, she saw something she could sit on. She put her hand on it. It was dirty. And she, says, she, says, and she looked at the lady, the invalid lady. She says, how do you live in a place like this? How, how do you get by? How do you get by? She says, lady, this is a terrible place. She says, it must be very difficult for you to be, to be here like this. Without a moment's hesitation, the Christian lady in that room said this, it's better higher up. And I tell you tonight, because of Jesus, it's better higher up. It's better higher up. David was at rock bottom. He was in a dark place in his life, the tents of Kedar. He'd been to the desolate mountains of Mesek, where it was lonely, where it was cold. He felt rejected. But he said, the goodness of God continued forever. In my distress, I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. Tonight, God wants to meet you and me right where we're at. God knows our sufferings. God sees, our, sees us in our sojourn. God wants to hear your supplication, and God wants to give you solace. I don't know how God's speaking to you tonight. Maybe you're in the tents of Kedar. 
Maybe, maybe, maybe God, God has you place of a place called Misek. Whatever it may be, God's here for you. But you've got to let God take care. God will take better care of you in this situation you could ever do yourself. Would you trust him with that? Would you trust him for your situation? Would you pray for your fo- would you pray for your foes? And would you pray in faith? And would you pray for freedom? God, God will deliver you, but you've got to pray according to God's way. Tonight, we'll just say the invitation. I'm not going to make it long. God's speaking to your heart. You need to do what God wants you to do tonight. Do it for his glory. Do it for your own soul.